reading for our text tonight from the book of Exodus. We'll look at chapter 14. Exodus uh, chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will shew you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. This is, of course, a well-documented account in Scripture that took place approximately 3,500 years ago. This group of people that we know to be the children of Israel or the nation of Israel was probably around 1 million people. Some think maybe as many as 3 million But they had had quite a time in the land of Egypt. According to Exodus, it was a period of 430 years. In the 12th chapter, verses 40 and 41, it says, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That's a long time. Genesis uh, tells us that Abraham was told by God that it would actually be 400 years. And in fact, Stephen, when he gives his sermon before he was martyred, he mentions 400 years. Some have wondered, why does it say 430 in some places, 400 in another? Well, The Lord is probably referring back to when Abraham was initially in the land of Egypt. He actually lived there for a while. And after a while, we know that Isaac and Ishmael had a conflict before Joseph and his brothers entered the land. And so it's possible that the scripture is speaking all the way back to when Abraham was there in that initial conflict. But we do know that Abraham in the scripture is called the father of the children of Israel. In fact, Stephen also mentions that in his own sermon that Abraham was their father and they looked to him as such. But we know that the Egyptians and the children of Israel, both, by this time in our text had, had really experienced the mighty hand of God. They had seen the mighty hand of God work in, in really, uh, we could say, unthinkable ways. In fact, we find previous to this time ten unthinkable plagues. And really what the Lord was doing was going against or or calling out the fake gods of Egypt. Numbers 33, chapter 4, excuse me, 33, verse 4 says, Upon their gods, it's worth noting it's lowercase g, Upon their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Judgments means here vindication, infliction, or punishment. And so the first plague was where water would be turned to blood. And it's quite an account as you read through it. Uh, The Egyptians, they looked to the Nile River for their strength. And they had gods over the Nile River. And so God targeted these fake gods to start with. It was supposed to be the source of Egypt's strength. and, And the Bible says that as the water turned to blood, that the fish 
in the water or in the river died. And, and the Egyptians literally began uh, digging around the river, trying to find water. And it says it was for seven days. God was putting them on notice because Pharaoh wouldn't let the people of God go. Well, the second plague in, in Exodus uh, chapter 8 was this plague of frogs. And, and Exodus 8.3 puts it this way. And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house and into thy bedchamber and upon thy bed and into the house of thy servants and upon thy people and into thine ovens and into thy kneading troughs, into their kitchens, into their ovens, into their beds. The, the scripture here speaks well of. Well, come to find out the Egyptians actually had a Fertility God that had a frog head. They couldn't stop the God of heaven. God was making a point. God was putting their fake gods on notice. The third plague, Exodus 8, 16, it speaks of the plague of, in the scripture, it talks about lice, or we might say gnats. And the Bible says that he, Moses, stretched forth his hand with the rod of God and out of the dust of the land that this the dust of the land turned miraculously into lice before all of the people. All the land of Egypt, and it even says over all man and beast or of the animal life. There was even a, a, a fake God over the desert or over the dust, which could not stop what the Lord wanted to do. The fourth plague, Exodus 8.20, was the plague of flies. And at this point, something changes. The plagues will no longer affect the children of Israel. It's just focusing on Pharaoh and the land of Egypt of those that would not let the children of Israel go. I read apparently they... The Egyptians had some sort of a god over beetles or over an insect god, and, and God perhaps was focusing on that, on that particular plague. Exodus 9-6 talks about this plague where their cattle would be destroyed, and the Lord did uh, that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died, but of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. God can be very clear and concise. Every detail matters with the Lord, I believe. The Egyptians, they even had a fake God with a head like a bull with horns. And that's what God was targeting. The sixth plague, Exodus 9, 8 through 12. God tells Moses to take handfuls of ash and to sprinkle it before Pharaoh. Boils break out uh, on the people and on their remaining animals but not for the children of Israel. And, and if we understand correctly, the priests of Egypt were no longer to stand in the court. They had been there for this, this big array, the, these things that were happening, and they no longer could stand because of the boils that would have been on them, and they no longer could go to their own uh, temple to do their worship to these fake gods. In the seventh plague, Exodus chapter 9, verse 13 through 15. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus shall the Lord God of the Hebrews let my people go that they may serve me. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof even until now. Well, wouldn't you know it? They had false gods over the atmosphere and over the sky. 
They could do nothing to stop it. And the Bible talks about utter destruction upon their fields, upon their cattle, and upon their people. And at this point, Pharaoh confesses. Like he's going to let the people go. But he changes his mind. The eighth plague, Exodus 10, the Lord says that locusts would cover the earth. To the extent that in verse 15 of Exodus 10, it says, And they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. Imagine this. And they did eat every herb of the land. And it goes on to say that they ate everything that the hail didn't get. There was nothing left over. Well, Pharaoh says he's sorry, sort of confesses, and then he quickly changes his mind. We know that the ninth plague was that of darkness, and no doubt the Egyptians had a sun god, if I understand correctly, spelled R-A-Ra. This fake deity had no power, no strength. In fact, I read that that particular god was worshipped second only to Pharaoh. And God targeted it as these plagues continued to get sort of, you might say, more personal to the people of Egypt. The Bible says that it was thick darkness. In Exodus 10, verse 23, they saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings, the scripture says. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And we know that the scripture talks about God hardening his heart. But Pharaoh had a choice from the beginning. God gives everybody an opportunity and a choice. And finally, in Exodus 12, we have the Passover instituted. And we know that it lays out exactly what ultimately Jesus Christ would do. Perfectly. All of the firstborn of Egypt would ultimately perish. You know, Paul, in writing to the Colossians, said, speaking of Jesus... And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things he might have the preeminence. The Lord was pointing to what Christ would do. He, he, he sent a plague to the firstborn of Egypt, but he knew ultimately that the firstborn from the dead would be Jesus Christ. And through this terrible, horrible, inconceivable, terrible plague, God delivers his people out of bondage. And through a terrible, inconceivable thing that Christ went through, he delivers you and me out of bondage, out of sin. We're delivered from our chains. We're given victory. So we find the children of Israel miraculously released from bondage with a mighty hand on that night. Pharaoh and the people at that night actually say, get out. Or in fact, they'll say, we'll all die. Exodus 12, verse 36. It says, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such thing as they required and they spoiled the Egyptians. And if you look at that word spoiled, it means snatched away, plucked away, stripped away their goods. And the scripture says their gold and their silver and their raiment. God allowed them to have favor with them. They said, get out and take our goods as well. So the people of God were well on their way to start a new life what they had witnessed. They had been released from bondage. We know from uh, slavery in this land. And if we set the stage of where we find them here in chapter 14, reading from Exodus 13, verses 18 and 21, and God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up 
harnessed out of the land of Egypt. Verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. In verse 22, he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, excuse me, from before the people. The miracles just continue for them. God uses a, a literal visual manifestation to guide them. Not only to guide them and to lead them, but from, to protect them from behind. And many have likened this manifestation as representing the Spirit of God. We know that uh, John, the Baptist, referred to being baptized by the Holy Spirit, and he said, and with fire. But we also know that the, the Spirit of God can be our comforter, can be our shield, can be our protector, can be a sweet dove to us many times. But many times it can be uh, as a fire, as the Scripture speaks about as well. Well, things start to get interesting. Pharaoh changes his mind yet again, the Bible tells us. His heart is hardened. We learned about James this morning, who also wrote that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Talk about double-minded. Pharaoh would be the picture of double-mindedness, I suppose. You know, double-mindedness is the opposite of how God works. God does not change his mind. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in writing to the Romans, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. When we talk about repentance, we, we, we talk about changing our way, changing our mind. There is a level of our intellect when we get saved that I don't want to live that way anymore. We have to make that choice and that decision. And, and then when we realize our condition, that it's as filthy rags, we have that godly sorrow. And as that comes together, we, we start a new life in Christ, and he gives us victory. Well, here we go again, Pharaoh. After all of him, or all that he and his people have witnessed, he changes his mind again, and he begins to pursue after the children of Israel. And we have to realize they probably were not even done mourning for their lost, their firstborn across all of the land of Egypt. How sad it would have been. Exodus 14 Verse 5 says, And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Verse 7 of Exodus 14, And he took 600 chosen chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt, and captains over every one of them, Verse 9, and the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them in camping by the seed behind Pahaheroth before Baal-Saphon. Well, look at how the people would have thought. We've been delivered. We've been given victory. The children of Israel were not equipped like these guys were. They didn't have the chariots. They didn't have the weaponry. They thought this was the end of the road. They thought they had reached a dead end. In fact, they looked around and thought there was no hope. And it looked like there was no hope. The, the, the battle did not look like they had a chance. It looked like they were doomed to be destroyed. This is where Moses comes with clear instructions that I really believe are relevant to you and to me today. Exodus fourteen thirteen. 
He says, as Moses said unto the people, first of all, fear ye not. Second of all, stand still. And thirdly, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today for the Egyptians who ye have seen today. Ye shall see them again no more forever. God does a good job. He doesn't leave any loose hands ends when we do it the Lord's way. He goes on to say, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. So number one, he says, don't be afraid. Notice it didn't change the situation that they were in. The armies were still there. The chariots were still there. Pharaoh and the armies were still there. But he could say, Moses, by word of the Lord, don't be afraid. That didn't appear that there was no all of a sudden hope. There was no hope. It didn't appear that there was hope. That hadn't changed. But he says, fear not. You know, this reminded me of a song that Zach Williams wrote. It says, fear is a liar. Why? Because fear comes from the enemy. And Jesus himself, in John chapter 6, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 44, said that the devil is the father of lies. And that's where fear comes from, I believe. The chorus from that song says, fear, it's a liar. It takes your breath. It stops you in your steps. Fear, it's a liar. It will rob your rest. It will steal your happiness. Fear, Cast your fear in the fire because fear is a liar. It comes from the devil. And he's a liar. And he's the father of lies. And the Lord would like us to be focused on the circumstances that would keep us afraid. And so I do ask you and I ask myself, what are we afraid of? What are we fearful of? What uh, conversation do you have to face this week that you're afraid of? What relationship? Are you afraid that never can be mended in your life? What sickness are you facing that you're afraid of? What are you afraid of at work? What are you afraid of at, at school? And, and at, what kind of things are you afraid of as far as changes coming in your life? And, and sometimes I believe it's anxiety. Maybe it's unsettledness in our lives. It's fear of the unknown or maybe a fear of failing. Sometimes I think we might be afraid to seek the Lord for an experience because we think we're not going to get through. God told the children of Israel here, fear ye not. Why? Because the Lord was on their side. It's sort of like, did he really need to say that after he had just seen, they had just seen all of the miracles that they had been through? Well, they were human. We're human. There's going to be things that come in our lives that, that, were, that cause us to be fearful, that give us anxiety. And I believe we have to be reminded that your scripture says, fear ye not. Don't be afraid. Trust God. And the second one is, which I think might be the most difficult, stand still. What does he mean? Don't do anything? You know, a lot of times I think we try and fix the problem. And I think sometimes we can get in our own way. We're praying, we're hoping, and we're trying to fix a problem in our lives, and we're trying different angles. And, and it's not that we're not trusting the Lord, but we're trying to figure out how this impossible situation is going to be fixed. You know, one of the most key elements to receiving from the Lord is surrender. Remember when you got saved. 
We didn't have anything to offer the Lord but brokenness. And at the end there, we simply surrendered our life to the Lord. We surrendered our all to the Lord. And that's where the Lord made a a difference. We got self out of the way. There's nothing we have to offer. I'm in need of a Savior. And we surrender our hearts and our lives. But you know that surrender is actually a key also to receiving sanctification. And receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We, we get to a place where we consecrate our lives. We praise the Lord. And at the end there, we surrender our all. And we in praise receive of the Lord. But I believe sometimes we try, we get into a place where we think, I, I, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I, I've, I've, I've given all my consecrations. Um, I've made things right. I've praised the Lord. Lord, I've done my part. Where's the blessing? You know, really nothing that we do brings the blessing of God. I'm not minimizing that we have to do our part. But I've, people have asked before and, and said, you know, I've been seeking the Lord. I've done everything that I know to do, and, and I don't know why I'm not getting through. You know, at the end there, you just need to surrender. And it is a mix of, of faith and belief, but we have to get ourselves out of the way. The Lord doesn't owe us our baptism because we consecrated and because we praised him. That's part of it, yes. But we want to surrender our lives, our all to the Lord and step out of the way. And Lord, I don't care no matter what, I'm yours. I want to serve you. I want to live for you. And when you praise him with that prayer, I believe the victory will come. So he tells them, stand still and see. Lastly, the salvation of the Lord. I think this is the best part. It tells us in chapter 14, verse 16, what Moses did at this point. But lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. It didn't say murky ground or muddy ground. We have a muddy place in our yard that never dries out. We're not sure why. That's not what happened here. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all the night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went in the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Bible tells us that Pharaoh and, and, and the chariots saw this, and they went out after the children of Israel. And the Bible speaks of them about driving their chariots hard, and the wheels began to come off. And in verse 28 says, And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, and there remained not so much as one of them. They saw complete and utter deliverance. Salvation for them all over again. Victory all over that for them again. What are you facing tonight that you need deliverance from? I believe there are things that we could be fearful from. And I believe that God would tell us, fear not. And he also would say, stand still. And he would also say, see the salvation of the Lord. See the Lord work. We serve the exact same God that granted these victories for the children of Israel. And if a day is as a thousand years for the Lord, it was three and a half days ago. God will fight for you. God will fight for me. God loves you. God wants you to win. 
because he wants you to be a follower of Christ. We know the Lord wins. And, and, but he cares about those little battles we have because we do have battles in our lives. And sometimes we try and, and fix them and fight for them, but we need the Lord to fight for us. We have to surrender and step out of the way and allow the Lord to work. And I believe that we individually in our lives can see the salvation of the Lord, victory and deliverance. What's a battle that's going on in your life that nobody else knows about? Christ cares. He knows about it. He wants to fight it for you. He wants to give you victory. If you're afraid to seek for an experience because you think you've done it before and you haven't received, fear not. Seek the Lord. He's got it for you. Let the Lord fight your battle. I can't fight it. We can't fight the battle. But we're on the Lord's side. He made us. He's providing for us. And he wants to give us victory. And so we're going to have an opportunity to pray. We want to trust the Lord. We want to put our all into Christ. He will answer our prayers. He will give us the victory. The song is 504. Let's come out and pray.